Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Why do we disagree? Is God the author of confusion? No. But a peace, as in all the churches of the saints, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. We all think we believe the truth. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 31. But we've never been enslaved by falsehoods. But if you continue not to believe the truth, you are a slave to them. Therefore, the Son makes you free. You shall be free indeed. So what is keeping me enslaved? I want to be free. But what is truth? Why does it seem so elusive? It's not because of it in and of itself, but oftentimes it's because of me. So again, what is truth? Why do we believe what we believe? How can we know if it's true? There's a podcast I used to listen to from many years ago called Philosophy Is This. Uh, in episode 41, I just wanted to read an excerpt from that that I thought really helped explain this. I realized something. I am fighting a losing battle here against society. When it comes to what people believe about stuff, at least in modern day American society, we're not supposed to ask people why they believe certain things that they believe. It's actually an incredible double standard. There are certain beliefs we're supposed to ridicule relentlessly. If someone is a racist, you're supposed to vilify them, just land blast them in public. You're supposed to hang them up in the town center in one of those village idiot wooden boxes. If someone's a communist, you're supposed to show them the error of their ways. You're supposed to convince them of the superior, superiority of capitalism and a representative republican democracy. But when it comes to other beliefs that are actually incredibly similar to those, if you think about it, we're not supposed to ask people why they believe what they believe. Social conventions have created this sort of protective cocoon for people on certain issues where they don't explain really need to step outside of what's comfortable for them to explain. Let's step out of that protective cocoon. Let's transform into a butterfly. Let's examine our beliefs, find out how we justify them. And then at the end, if you're uncomfortable, you can go right back into that cocoon. It's not going anywhere. To believe in anything, to claim to know anything, no matter the amount of empirical data or reasoning that's at your disposal is a leap of faith. Even something is immediately in front of us at all times, like the physical world, with a seemingly endless amount of evidence that we could pull from to reinforce its existence. The point of this is that to believe in anything is a leap of faith. But I want to take a step back right there, because this is a very common point where people make a very easy logical leap. That because everything is a leap of faith at some level, that therefore makes all leaps of faith equal or all beliefs the exact same thing. It's far from the truth. We may be making leaps of faith all the time whenever we believe something, but all leaps of faith are not created equal. And this brings me to the next very strange thing about the condition that we're born into as human beings. We can believe literally anything that we want to believe. Just think about that. Consider that we can believe anything. And what I mean by that is that what you believe has absolutely nothing to do with how true it is. Now, this is something that's very obvious to some people and not so obvious to other people. 
Other people think, well, no, I believe in things and all humans believe in things because they think it's the truth, right? There's no other reason why people believe things. Well, if you doubt that the truth is not connected to beliefs and things at any level, just consider the fact that there are millions of examples I could give you right now of people that hold mutually exclusive beliefs about things where it's impossible for them to be correct about them all. Here it is. If you're a person who claims that the basis for why you believe the things that you do is because you think they are true and not because they serve some useful purpose to you, then you are instantly assuming a lifelong responsibility, a lifelong responsibility of putting your beliefs under a microscope, a lifelong responsibility of looking at them through an extremely critical lens of taking every new piece of information you get and weighing it, your current beliefs against it. Think of the implications of that. Think of now what is impossible for you to say. If you are truly concerned with your beliefs being true, then there should never be a belief that you hold. There should never be a point in your life where you say something like, it doesn't matter what anyone says to me. It doesn't matter which new facts are presented to me. I will never falter from this belief. I am confident. You can't say that. If truth is truly the goal that you're going for. No one said this was going to be easy, all right? The easy way is deciding that whenever somebody says something that contradicts what you think, is to just plug your ears and run in the opposite direction. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with what your beliefs are out of convenience and not out of desire to find the truth. Well, this is a lifelong commitment. And hey, I got more bad news for you. This whole process of weighing your beliefs up against the truth is going to be a long, rigorous uphill battle because there are far more ways for you to be wrong about what you believe than, into, than right about what you believe in. But truth is not afraid to be questioned. If it is, is it really true? Thomas Jefferson says, quote, or question with boldness, even the existence of God. Because if there be one, he must more prove the homage of reason than that of blindfolded fear. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Now these Jews from Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if things were so. Acts 17, verse 11. William Lane Craig, in an interview about apologetics, said at times he needed to pull that book off the shelf and re-examine things that he thought he had settled or things that he was still weighing and considering. My dad, several years ago when I was in college, gave a lesson called, Should I Leave the Faith of My Fathers? And that sounds like an odd sermon to give to a bunch of Christians, but it's the very thing that all Christians need to hear and need to weigh and need to consider. In it, he asked to consider why we believe what we believe. Do we go to church just because our family does, but we haven't weighed it for ourselves? If we haven't, what are we? So I'm questioning everything. To what end? Paul tells the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. To make this faith your own and not someone else's. To stand on your own two feet. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. 2 Corinthians 4.13 But I want to be careful in what I speak. I don't want to be a mindless robot sounding wise by speaking the party line. George Orwell, in an article about politics in the English language, says orthodoxy of whatever color seems to demand a lifeless, imitative style. The political dialects to be found in pamphlets, leading articles, manifestos, they're all alike in that one almost never finds in them a fresh, vivid, homemade turn of speech. When one watches some tired hack on the platform, one often has a curious feeling that one is not watching a live human being, but some kind of dummy. A feeling which suddenly becomes stronger at moments when the light catches the speaker's spectacles and turns them into a blank disc which seem to have no eyes behind them. And this is not altogether fanciful. A speaker who uses that kind of phraseology has gone some distance toward turning himself into a machine. The appropriate noises are coming out of his larynx, but the brain is not involved as it would be if he were choosing the words himself. If the speech he is making is one that he is accustomed to make over and over again, he may be almost unconscious of what he is saying, as one is when one utters the responses in church. And this reduced state of consciousness, if not indispensable, is at any rate favorable to political conformity. So if you are a free-thinking, rational individual who has examined the evidence, you do all this. You tear down all your sacred idols in your mind, are actively working to dispel your biases for or against, and have concluded, like Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Stop there. We didn't get your page. Printing, ah, dismissed a few words. So if you are like Peter, and you say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, why would you think that orthodoxy, conformity, and lifeless utterances would sustain you in your walk with God? It is one thing to conclude that there is a God, and Jesus is his Son, but it is a greater lifelong process to find out who this God is, and how can I be like him? He wants to remake us in his image attuning our spirit to his spirit, thinking as he would think and acting as he would act, not as some kind of holy robot, but imitating him out of respect and honor for his wisdom and goodness, like a student would a teacher or a son would a father. 
The confession was the beginning, and the walk with him is a lifelong pursuit. We want to come to terms with God and what he thinks. I have this book my brother gave me many years ago from Mortimer Adler on how to read a book. I, I talk about this book constantly. Uh, there's so many good things in this of what he iterates, and I wanted to, to break down that barrier of you not knowing what he says so that we can well, come to terms on what we're talking about here. Unless the reader comes to terms with the author, the communication and knowledge from one to the other does not take place. For a term is the basic element of communicable knowledge. A word can have many meanings, especially an important word. If the author uses a word in one meaning and the reader reads it in another, words are passed between them, but they have not come to terms. Where there is unresolved ambiguity in communication, there is no communication. Or at best, communication must be incomplete. Just look at the word communication for a moment. It's rooted its root is related to the word common. We speak of a community as a group of people has something in common. Communication is an effort on the part of one person to share something with another person, his knowledge, his decisions, his sentiments. It succeeds only when it results in a common something, such as an item of information or knowledge that the two parties share. When there is ambiguity in the communication of knowledge, all that is in common are the words that one person speaks or writes and another hears or reads. So long as ambiguity persists, there is no meaning in common between the writer and reader. For the communication to be successfully completed, there it is. It is necessary for the two parties to use the same words with the same meanings. In short, to come to terms. When that happens, Communication happens. The miracle of two minds, but with a single thought. Terms only occur in the process of communication. They occur when a writer tries to avoid ambiguity and a reader helps him by trying to follow his, his use of words. There are, of course, many degrees of success in this. Coming to terms is the ideal toward which writer and reader must should strive. Since this is one of the primary achievements of the art of writing and reading, we can think of terms as a skilled use of words for the sake of communicating knowledge, the aim of which is not the outlining of a book structure, but the interpretation of its contents or message. They require you to take two steps, a step dealing with the language as such, and a step beyond the language to the thought that lies behind it. If language were a pure and perfect medium for thought, these steps would not be separate. If every word had only one meaning, if words cannot be used ambiguously, if in short each word was an ideal term, language would be a diaphorous medium. The reader would see straight through to the words and the content of his mind. If that were the case, there would be no need for all that second stage of analytical reading. Interpretation would be unnecessary, but of course that is far from the case. We cannot expect a good writer to do his best to reach through the barrier in language and inevitably set up, but we cannot expect him to do the job all by himself. We must meet him halfway. We as readers must try to tunnel through from our side of the barrier. The likelihood of a meeting of minds through language depends on the willingness of both reader and writer to work together. Just as teaching will not avail unless there is a reciprocal activity of being taught, so no author, regardless of his skill in writing, can achieve communication without a reciprocal skill on the part of readers. If that were so, 
the diverse skills of writing and reading would not bring minds together. However, much effort was expended. Any more than the men who tunnel through from the opposite sides of the mountain would never meet unless they made the calculations according to the same principles of engineering. The ambiguity prevents or at least impedes communication. Only when you think the word as we think it do we have one thought between us. Thus we come to terms. So we tear down these walls in our minds. So what do we agree on? That God is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That he sent Jesus into the world to save sinners, of whom we are all participants of that. That his spirit is continually working to reconcile us to himself by remaking us in his image, replacing our corrupt minds with God's own mind. That the Bible is the major avenue through which God reveals his mind to us. And that we are seeking to understand God and desiring to please him. Is that it? Is that all we can agree on? I feel like that's a lot. I feel like we've narrowed down all of this from all the possibilities in the universe of all the things that people could ever think or believe. And we tried to follow this trail that God has laid out for us. And we've, we've narrowed it down to this. This is the truth. This is the God that we should serve. But it doesn't stop there. This now has just opened up. As soon as you realize that he is true and that he is the God that created us and that the Bible is his word to us, expressing his mind on things, that that now opens up a myriad, a new universe of things to think about, to, to explore and to express of what God says to us. So what pleases God? How are we to know? Well, let's look at a few passages and see if we can pick it out. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 7 through 8. Okay. Justice, mercy, humility. Oh, yeah, real simple concepts. I got this in the bag, he says facetiously. How about another? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, okay, that's what we want, right? Keep the commandments. Okay. Lay them out to me. He said to him, which ones? He said, you shall not murder. Okay. You shall not commit adultery. Okay. You shall not steal. Okay. You shall not bear false witness. Okay. Honor your father and your mother. Okay. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. That seems, that's pretty simple. So let's just look at that first one. You shall not murder. Okay, so don't kill anyone. Check. But why? why is, what's wrong with murder? I want to understand God on this, right? I want to come to terms with him. I want to know what he thinks about this. Why murder? Why, what's so wrong with that? Maybe I need to back up and understand. What does God think of life that murder would be ending? In Genesis 1, God breathed into man the breath of life. 
And then a couple chapters later, Cain killed Abel. And a few chapters after that, God told Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God he made man. Hmm. That makes sense, right? It makes sense why God would be so opposed to that. But what about self-defense? That might touch closer to home. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3. Well, that changes things. Don't kill. But sometimes you can. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 19. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 12, 23, 34. Those are some heavy things to wrestle with. Maybe God says, I can, but should I? Am I robbing this individual who's coming to my house of an opportunity to turn their life around? Am I considering the life of my family if I don't? What else does Jesus say on this subject? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Good. Yeah, he agrees with that too. But I say to you, hold on here, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Well, that significantly changes things, doesn't it? Not only do I need to respect the life in a person, but also my attitude toward them. And this is only one command. This is only one command. And now we have all these breath of things to think about of how God looks at us and how we ought to look at each other and even our enemies. You can quickly see all the nuance that we consider even in a simple command. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Romans 14 verse 5. That's a short verse, but man, that's, there's a lot of weight to that. With all these questions, is it even possible to understand God and what I should do to please him? With all the hindrances to communication, can we even understand one another? Let's look at one more excerpt from this book from Mortimer Adler. Ordinary conversations between persons who co confront each other are good only when they are carried on civilly. We are not thinking merely of the civilities according to conventions of social politeness. Such conventions are not really important. What is important is that there is an intellectual etiquette to be observed. Without it, con conversation is bickering rather than profitable communication. But even if the reader is not convinced or persuaded, the author's intention and effort should be respected. The reader owes him a considered judgment. If he cannot say, I agree, he should at least have grounds for disagreeing or even for suspending judgment on the question. A good book deserves an active reading. Remember Bacon's recommendation to the reader, read not to contradict and confute, nor to believe and take for granted, nor to find talk and discourse, but to weigh and consider. The virtue of teachability 
a virtue that is almost always misunderstood. Teachability is often confused with subservience. A person is wrongly thought to be teachable if he is passive and pliable. On the contrary, teachability is an extremely active virtue. No one is really teachable who does not freely exercise his power of independent judgment. He can be trained, perhaps, but not taught. The most teachable reader is therefore the most critical. He is the reader who finally responds to a book by the greatest effort to make up his own mind on the matters the author has discussed. If our purpose in trying to communicate is serious, we wish to convince or persuade, more precisely, to convince about theoretical matters and persuade about matters that ultimately affect action or feeling. To be equally serious in receiving communication, one must be not only a responsive, but also a responsible listener. You're responsive to the extent that you follow what has been said and note the intention that prompts it. But you also have the responsibility of taking a position. When you take it, it is yours, not the author's. To regard anyone except yourself as responsible for your judgment is to be a slave and not a free man. You must be able to say with reasonable certainty, I understand, before you can say any one of the following things. I agree or I disagree or I suspend judgment. These three remarks exhaust all the critical positions you can take. We hope you have not made the error of supposing that to criticize is always to disagree. That is a popular misconception. To agree is just as much an exercise of critical judgment on your part as to disagree. You can be just as wrong in your agreeing as in disagreeing. To agree without understanding is inane. To disagree without understanding is impudent. Though it may not be so obvious at first, suspending judgment is also an act of criticism. It is taking the position that something has not been shown. You are saying that you are not convinced or persuaded one way or the other. When you disagree, do so reasonably, not disputatiously or contentiously. There is no point in winning an argument if you know or suspect you were wrong. Practically, of course, it may get you ahead in the world for a short time, but honesty is the better policy in the slightly longer run. Aristotle, in his ethics, it would be thought to be better, he says, indeed to be our duty for the sake of maintaining the truth, even to destroy what touches us closely, especially as if we are philosophers or lovers of wisdom. For while both are dear, piety requires us to honor truth above our friends. Most people think that winning the argument is what matters, not learning the truth. He who regards conversation as a battle can win only by being an antagonist, only by disagreeing successfully, whether he is right or wrong. The reader who approaches a book in this spirit reads it only to find something he can disagree with. For the disputatious and the contentious, a bone can always be found to pick a quarrel over. It makes no difference whether the bone is really a chip on your own shoulder. But if he realizes that the only profit in conversation with living or dead teachers is that one can learn from them, if he realizes that you went only by gaining knowledge, not by knocking the other fellow down, he may see the futility of mere contentiousness. More than honesty is required here. It goes without saying that a reader should admit a point where he sees it. But he should also not feel whipped by having to agree with an author instead of dissenting. If he feels that way, he is inadvertently disputatious. In the light of the second maxim, this problem is seemed to be emotional rather than intellectual. It recommends that you regard disagreements as capable of being resolved. 
Where the second maxim urge you not to disagree disputatiously, this one warns you against disagreeing hopelessly. One is hopeless about the fruitful, fruitfulness of discussion if he does not recognize that all men can agree. Note that we said can agree. We do not say all rational men do agree. Even when they do not agree, they can. The point we are trying to make is that the disagreement is futile agitation unless it is undertaken with the hope that it may lead to the resolution of an issue. These two facts, that people do disagree and can agree, arise from the complexity of human nature. Men are rational animals. Their rationality is the source of their power to agree. Their animality and their imperfections of the reason that it entails is the cause of most of the disagreements that occur. Men are creatures of passion and prejudice. The language they use to communicate is an imperfect medium, clouded by emotion and colored by interest, as well as an inadequately transparent for thought. Yet to the extent that men are rational, these obstacles to their understanding can be overcome. Hence, the person who, at any stage of a conversation, disagrees, should at least hope to reach agreement in the end. He should be as much prepared to have his own mind changed as to seek the mind to seek to change the mind of another. He should always keep before him the possibility that he misunderstands or that he is ignorant on some point. No one who looks down upon a disagreement as an occasion for teaching another should forget that it is also an occasion for being taught. The trouble is that many people regard disagreement as unrelated to either teaching or being taught. They think that everything is just a matter of opinion. I have mine and you have yours and a right to our opinions is as inviolable as our right to private property. On such a view, communication cannot be profitable if the profit to be gained is an increase in knowledge. Conversation is hardly better than a ping-pong game of opposed opinions, a game in which no one keeps score, no one wins, and everyone is satisfied because he does not lose. That is, he ends up holding the same opinions he started with. We would not and could not write this book if we held this view. Instead, we hold that the knowledge can be communicated and that discussion can result in learning if genuine knowledge, not mere personal opinion, is at stake. Then for the most part, either disagreements are apparent only or to be removed by coming to terms and a meeting of minds or they are real and the genuine issues can be resolved in the long run, of course, by appeals to fact and reason. The maximum of rationality concerning disagreements is to be patient for the long run. An argument is empty unless it is undertaken on the supposition that there is attainable an understanding that, when attained by reason in the light of all the relevant evidence, resolves the original issue. Respect the difference between knowledge and mere personal opinion by giving reasons for any critical judgment you make. The first is this. Since men are animals as well as rational, it is necessary to acknowledge the emotions you bring to a dispute or those that arise in the course of it. Otherwise, you're likely to be giving vent to feeling, not stating reasons. You may even think you have reasons when all you have are strong feelings. Second, you must make your own assumptions explicit. You must know that your prejudices, that is, your prejudgments, what they are. Third and finally, an attempt at impartiality is a good antidote for the blindness that is almost inevitable in partisanship. Controversy without partisanship is, of course, impossible. But to be sure that there is more light in it and less heat, each of the disputants should at least try to take the other fellow's point of view. 
If you have not been able to read a book sympathetically, your disagreement with it is probably more contentious than civil. We have violated our own rules about good intellectual manners and controversy. We have caught ourselves attacking a book rather than criticizing it, knocking straw men over, denouncing where we could not support denials, proclaiming our prejudices as if our ours were any better than the author's. That, that cuts deep. That rings true to me because of, I'm guilty of these same things. So what, what's the answer? Someone might say, well, command, example, inference, statements of truth, that answers it all. If we just use those, I don't know how we could disagree if we just use them. These are tools that can aid us in understanding someone, trying to come to terms with them, but is not a perfect system for evaluation. The same with all human communication still requires a meeting of the minds with God. But there's plenty of narrative that requires us to use wisdom to discern and make judgments from the text. What does God think about this? He didn't write us a dissertation, but a narrative that requires effort on our part to weigh and consider. We might weigh one command or example differently than another. We might think he's inferring one thing, but he's actually inferring something else. God hasn't said much on a subject, and some conclusions are tenuous. But some also have more knowledge of Scripture than others. But knowledge or quoting Scripture does not equal wisdom or understanding. Gardner Hall, in a sermon called Men Walking Like Trees, describes the, uh, the man being, that was blind that Jesus healed in multiple stages where he comes to Jesus and Jesus touches him the first time and, and he sees men walking like trees and, and he comes back to Jesus and Jesus touches him again. And then he sees clearly. And the way Gardner Hall describes this is that I need to keep coming back to Jesus, the word of God, to see more clearly. That it's not going to take one touch or two, but a thousand. I need to keep coming back to him. That may take on the form of studying the Bible more closely. But also that may come through practicing the things he says and witnessing the truth of them made manifest in your life firsthand. John, in, in 1 John, writing to the Christians, talks about giving them not a new commandment, but an old one. Yet again, it is made new in you. To love one another. This is not new, but every time you do it, it is being made new in you and reestablishes the truth of it. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, verse 2. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. So where does that leave us? My Angelou is famous for saying, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. 
Not that I have already attained or already am perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on to the to- toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. We're not perfected, but let us press on. The name Israel means wrestle or strives with God. Let's act like a true Israelite and keep wrestling, keep striving with God, not against him, and he will bless us. Keep asking questions. And let us be a safe harbor for these ships full of questions to dock. But I know that I'm not always that. I'm highly opinionated. I'm forceful. I'm easily offended. I'm impulsive. Just this morning in our peacemaker class, from the text, he says, God may also use conflicts to expose sinful attitudes and habits in your life. Conflict is especially effective in breaking down appearances and revealing stubborn pride, a bitter and unforgiving heart, or a critical tongue. I needed that today. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Oh, do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this that you love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you are consumed by one another. But I keep trying to give others the benefit of the doubt. I keep trying to be patient. I keep trying to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, rightly handling the word of truth, and not as a club. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. We should try to open our minds and hearts to one another, hear each other, seek to understand and to be understood. But at some point, we may come to an impasse. As Mortar Adwer said, agree or disagree or defer judgment on an argument. To finish William Lane's Craig example that I gave earlier, of pulling a book off the shelf, that at some point... We have to put it back on the shelf if we can't come to a resolution in our own minds. Sometimes I need to defer judgment. Let it percolate. Let it simmer on the stove for a while while the flavors meld together. And when I'm ready again, I'll pull that back down. Maybe I've grown. Maybe God has revealed other things to me that affects my thinking. Maybe I'm ready to handle the implications of what I wasn't before. We should keep studying some things but also keep them in perspective. Jesus didn't condemn the Pharisees for tithing mint, anise, and cumin, but they lost perspective by neglecting weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faith. Let's not receive the same condemnation as they, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Matthew 23, 24. Even in all of this, 
Disagreement isn't a bad thing. It's an opportunity to demonstrate Christ. We act like disagreements are a defect of our creation, but it's a feature. How else can we manifest Christ living in us if we had no struggles? This is the avenue through which the wisdom of God is revealed. Is the world and its foolishness, you can't allow wrong think. You need to silence opposition. The science is settled. You need to win the argument. This is the world's wisdom. But we're in the business of winning hearts to God. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield full mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James 3, 17 through 18. We need to handle our disagreements with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body in Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is an opportunity for us to grow in unity. We may have work to grow in unity of knowledge, but let us grow in unity of God's Spirit, working within us, working in ministry, serving each other and edifying each other, serving our communities, proclaiming his name and glorifying God in those communities. Let us not quench that spirit. Let's be busy with our Father's business.